0: We are continuing a series called It's Time where we're looking at the second half of John's gospel account. This is the last week of his life and earthly ministry, basically. Uh, Obviously, after the resurrection, he's around for a while. But this is the ultimate time frame where everything is coming to a head. And what's he up to? And what is he committed to? That's the question we're asking, looking at some of the things he's committed to. And so today, we're going to look at another aspect of what he's committed to, and the idea is going to center around the idea of love. Now, we hear a lot about love, don't we, in our culture, through music, through movies, through books, yet love generally doesn't look like it's all it's cracked up to be in our culture. It can seem more like a myth than a reality, at least as love is commonly portrayed. It's fickle, it's fleeting, and it's often self-serving. The fact is, there's a sizable number of people who haven't even truly experienced it. Some of you might remember the name Tim Cash. He was a former professional baseball player for a while. He was also the chaplain for the Atlanta Braves. And about 25 years ago or so, this is why you might remember his name, he came here to Penn Valley Church uh, for a baseball clinic. And he made a statement, now I wasn't here at the time, but I had heard the tape afterward, and these are not his exact words, but I think they get the point. He said, everyone in life has experienced pain, but not everyone in life has yet experienced love. Everyone's experienced pain, but not everybody's experienced love. Keep that in the back of your mind now as we go through this passage that we're coming up to in John chapter 13, and I'd invite you to turn there, and as we do, let's do just a brief Recap, shall we, of what got us to this point here in John. So, John's gospel account is really built around the number seven in a lot of ways. There are seven miracles that he records, and there are seven I am statements. And here they are, just for your reference. He frames his gospel account of the life of Jesus to point us to who this Jesus is, that he has followed now for some time so that we might believe. That's what he's going to say at the end of the book. We'll get to that in a few weeks. But he frames it around these seven miracles and seven I.M.s because he wants to establish for us that Jesus is, in fact, the long-awaited Messiah. He's the rescuer. As we've been looking at it, though, we've taken out one of the primary, although maybe not the most primary theme, but the idea of time and the fact that Jesus will now say it's time or my hour has come. And we really could almost divide John's gospel into two and say for the first half up through verse, uh, chapters 1 through 11, it's about it not yet being time. And then in the second half, beginning with chapter 12, where over the last two weeks, Adam has been in with us, it is time. In order to get this, though, a little bit more, I just want to do a little bit of work here and give you a couple terms, because I think these are really important. The first is time. Now, in the Greek, there's two primary words that the New Testament uses. Chronos, which is where we get chronological time from. It's sequential and quantitative. You measure it. It is expendable. Once you spend the time, it's gone. There's that, but there's also kairos. And kairos isn't about a measurement of time in that respect. It's about the right, opportune, or supreme moment. It's about quality, not about quantity. And again, that's kind of important as we go through this part of John's gospel to keep that in mind. But as we know, the Greeks also had several words for love. And what we want to hone in on today is this last word, agape. It's the highest and noblest form of love, which sees something infinitely precious in its object. Meaning, the object of that love is precious to the one who loves it. So keep those two in mind. We're going to be talking a little bit about um, Kairos, and we're going to be talking a little bit about Agape. And as we do, I want us to notice, as should be expected by now, that Jesus is committed to love. One of the things that he's most centrally committed to in his life and in his ministry is the love of others. He loves the Father first and foremost, but he loves the people the Father has sent him to. So I want to ask you to stand, if you would, for just a moment. We're not going to read this whole chapter together, but I want to ask you to stand uh, as I read this from John chapter 13. Then Simon Peter said to him, Lord, not only my feet, but also my hands and my head. And Jesus said to him, the one who is bathed does not need to wash except for his feet, but is completely clean. Then later in that chapter he's gonna say a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you. You also are to love one another. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you have love for one another. may be seated. Father, thank you uh, for this chapter In John's gospel. Thank you that the one who would become known as the apostle of love sat at the master's feet. And for Jesus' earthly ministry, it seems certainly that John, along with the other disciples, didn't really quite get it. But thank you, Father, that you had plans for them and you have plans for us. And there are times when we don't get your love, but you don't give up on us. And you didn't give up on them. So thank you, God, for working through their life and through ours and working your love in us and through us so that others can see what you're like. Give us eyes to see clearly and ears to hear as your spirit speaks this morning. And give us a heart of joy as we contemplate your love for your people. We pray in Jesus' precious, holy, and loving name. Amen. All right. So, as we look at Jesus' love, keep in mind that for John, while many of the other gospel writers kind of looked at the bigger picture the last week, he really hones in on Jesus' personal interaction with his disciples. And so, rather than focusing on the crowds, rather than focusing on the religious leaders, rather than focusing on the Roman authorities, he's going to focus on what Jesus says and does with his disciples. And that's important to keep in mind in terms of the context. So, as we look at Jesus' love today, let's notice five things. Let's notice Jesus' supreme love. Let's notice Jesus' servant love. Let's notice Jesus' sanctifying love, his sacrificial love, and lastly, his surprising love. His supreme love, servant love, sanctifying love, sacrificial love, and surprising love. Let's get started. So, chapter 13, verse 1. Now, before the feast of the Passover, when Jesus knew that his hour had come to depart out of this world back to the Father, having loved his own who were in the world, he loved them to the end. This is describing that supreme love that I referenced from Jesus. Notice the context. It says, now before the feast of Passover. So Passover is upon them. This is the time that Israel as a nation would have celebrated the fact that all those years ago, When they were a slave people to a harsh earthly master, God heard their cries, and he intervened on their behalf. But he did it in an unexpected way, right? He doesn't just come in with legions of angels and utterly destroy the Egyptians. What he does is he says, listen, I'm going to let you out, but you've got to trust me. And here's how you can trust me, you're going to get a lamb, a cuddly little woolly lamb, and you're going to slaughter it. And that blood is going to go on the doorposts and the lintel. And he's like, and when, I, when the destroyer who I'm sending sees it, he's going to pass over. That's how they were going to be rescued. The centerpiece of Passover is a rescue through the bloody death of an innocent lamb. And if you want, and I would encourage you to, especially as we get closer to Easter, read Exodus chapter 12. That's where this is recorded at. This was so important for the Israelites that initially, it says in Exodus 12, that their new year started with the month of the Passover. So when that happened, that's when their new year began, was that month. Now, that changed over time. But at that point, it was such a significant event, this Passover that it was to mark the first month of their year. So it's this background is Passover, but notice what it says. His hour. His hour had come. Now, we saw this earlier in the book of John, and John's gospel account. There were times where it hadn't come. At the wedding, where his mom comes to him and says, hey, look, we've run out of wine, they need some help. And he's like, mom, it's not my time yet. A few chapters later, his siblings, who didn't believe him when he said who he was, come to say, hey, look, there's a big feast in Jerusalem. You should head up there. Look, people who are like you, they don't hide themselves. They show themselves. And he says, my hour hasn't come yet. Then he feeds the 5,000, one of the seven miracles that John outlines in his book. And afterwards, it says that Jesus knew that the people who were there that day, We're going to try to force him to become their king. They wanted an earthly king. They were going to try to force him. So what does he do? He retreats. Why? Because it wasn't his time. And then lastly, we see that his opponents, his enemies, wanted him arrested, wanted him dealt with, wanted him gone. And so they send a guard to arrest him, but they can't do it. Why? Because it wasn't his time. But now his time's arrived. Now his hour is here and what he stood back from before, he's now embracing, and what does that look like? And I want to ask you a question, a personal question, not for you to give an answer out loud, but just to think about. What would you do if you discovered that you only had a brief time to live? Right, because in Jesus' case here, we're not talking years, we're not talking months, we're not talking weeks. He literally has a matter of hours before his earthly life will end. Now, look what he does in that time. We're going to get to that in just a minute. But as I ask that question of you, what would you do? A few weeks ago, my wife and I were watching a medical drama from several years ago that we enjoy. And on there, the episode centered around a malpractice suit of one of the oncologists at the hospital. Now, you hear oncologists, you hear cancer, you hear malpractice you know what did he do to the poor cancer patient in actuality what happened was he misdiagnosed the person as having cancer when in fact they didn't and the guy sued him when he found out he didn't have cancer right and that sounds strange but this guy gave up everything he had he sold his house he liquidated his investments and he and his wife were going to travel that's what they wanted to do at the end so now he's without a home He's without a job, right? Why? Because he thought his time was coming to an end. And I suspect most people in the world today, if they heard that they only had an abbreviated period of time to live, would probably do something similar. Maybe not quite liquidate everything, but they would have a list of things they'd want to do. Well, Jesus has something he's going to do. But it's not going to be a bucket list the way we think of it. Right? What does he do? It says he loves his followers, his disciples, to the end. He says, you know what? I don't have much time left. I'm going to invest what I have left in making sure they understand God's love. My love for them. That's what he's going to do here. And it's so, There's two words that get combined here in this this sentence. The word love is a form of agape, and the word to the end is the Greek word telos, which literally means to the end. But it could mean mean to the extreme, it could mean to the end of his life, it could mean to the end of time. And the question is, which is it? And the answer is, yes. It's all those, right? It doesn't have to be just one. Jesus is going to love them to the end of his earthly life. Jesus is also going to love them to the end of time. And Jesus is also going to give every fiber of his being in love for them. You know, when our kids were young, and I think most of you probably have had a similar experience, you'd ask them, how much do you love me? Right? And they'd stretch out the arms. I I love you this much. They try to show the biggest way they possibly can. Right? Which is a great example because their Heavenly Father... And a son who stretched out his arms like this, right? But they try to quantify for you how much they love you. Jesus is showing his followers here and reminding them just how much they love him. And when our kids were younger, we used the Jesus Storybook Bible most every night. And in there it says that he loved his children with a never stopping, never giving up, unbreaking, always and forever love. That's what it looks like to love to the end, right? And it's what Paul goes after in Romans chapter 8, where he says, Who will separate us from the love of Christ? For I am sure that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor rulers, nor things present, nor things to come, nor powers, nor height, nor depth, nor anything else in all of creation will be able to separate us from the love of God in Christ Jesus our Lord. So just to make sure they understand, he says, nothing in all of creation. He's like, I'm going to cover everything. Because Jesus really does, in fact, have a never stopping, never giving up, un- under, uh, unbreaking, always and forever love. And that's the first thing that he's showing here to us, his supreme love. But secondly, he's going to show us his servant love. During supper, when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray him, Jesus, knowing that the Father had given all things into his hands, and that he had come from God and was going back to God, rose from supper. He laid aside his outer garments and, taking a towel, tied it around his waist. Then he poured water into a basin and began to wash the disciples' feet and to wipe them with the towel that was wrapped around him. So, it's the Passover. And during the Passover, what would commonly happen is the husband or or one of the heads of the household during the Passover meal would stand up and he would recount how God rescued his people. So maybe, though we don't know this for sure, but maybe when Jesus stands up here, that's what the disciples were expecting. But that's not at all what they got. In fact, what was coming was something they could not imagine or expect. You see, because feet washing, as you might imagine, especially back then, was considered the most menial of menial tasks. In fact, under Jewish law, not the Old Testament, but the law that had been developed over time by Jewish authorities, it forbid people who had servants who were Jewish to make those servants wash anybody's feet because it was considered so humiliating and yet here's jesus washing their feet see if you wouldn't expect a servant to do it who is jewish you certainly wouldn't expect the master do it, right? Can you imagine you show up at an Amazon warehouse and there's Jeff Bezos on the forklift or on the line putting things into a box, right? You wouldn't expect that. You don't go to the White House. Oh, and there's the president. He's cleaning the toilets today. No, that doesn't happen, right? Too important, right? But Jesus is pointing something out to us. Have you ever had to do something that you felt was beneath you? That you felt, hey, I shouldn't have to do this. Whatever this is Jesus is showing us that his kingdom is a lot different Than the kingdoms of this world than the mindset and worldview of this world You see he had already humbled himself at the very beginning of John's gospel John says in chapter 1 that the word became flesh and dwelt among us. That's his recap of Christmas. That God came in human form. He already condescended, he already humbled himself, and yet at the end of his life, he's going to do it even further. In this particular case, he's going to strip off his outer garments, he's going to be in his skimpies. All right, he's going to be bare-chested, bare-legged, and he's going to wrap a towel around himself. And he's going to go around all 12, and that's important, and we'll get back to that. All 12 disciples, and he's going to wash their feet. You see, what Jesus is showing them and us is that Christian love always serves. And that there is no act of service that's beneath the Christian. Christian love serves and there's no act of service that's beneath the Christian. So we've looked at his supreme love. We've looked at his servant love. Now we're getting really into the heart of the passage. Let's look at his sanctifying love. And here we come. Okay. He's now, he's begun washing feet and he comes around to Peter. Oh, Peter. If you're familiar with him, right, you realize that just like with a lot of men, Peter suffers from thinking, or saying before thinking, right? Kids today get hand, foot, and mouth. He just had foot-in-mouth disease, right? Because he's like, oh, no, 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 Jesus, you, no, you, can't, you can't do this, right? He believes what's happening is wrong, that Jesus shouldn't be putting himself In this position, and frankly this isn't the first time this has happened with Peter. If you look in Matthew 16, I'm not asking you to turn there, but if you read that at some point, it says that Jesus tells his followers that he is going to die. And Peter takes him aside, and this is literally what it says, and began to rebuke him saying, far be it from you, Lord. Now notice, in that passage in Matthew, in that passage here, he refers to Jesus in both cases as Lord, and then immediately says no. Two things that don't go together, right? If he's truly Lord and he's going to do something or tell you to do something, who are we to say no? Right? But that's exactly what he does, because in his mind, this can't be something that the Messiah is going to do. But again, Jesus is recalibrating. He's showing that his kingdom is different. And notice here in this case what he does. Notice his gentleness. He doesn't doesn't say like he had to in Matthew 16, get behind me, Satan. That's not what he says here to Peter. Right? He says, Peter, you don't get it. And that's okay. You're going to. He doesn't blast him. He doesn't demean him. He reminds Peter, though, that unless we're washed, we can't belong to Jesus. So Peter's like, okay, now I got it. So God, if, 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 if I have to be washed, then don't just wash my feet, wash every part of me. Now that could have been an awkward moment if he was taking it literally, right? He's like, wash all of me, Jesus. And he thinks he's got it, and, and Jesus is like, no, no no peter you're still not getting it that's not what i'm going after here i'm not talking about a physical bath first of all and notice what it says it says the one who has bathed does not need to wash except for his feet but is completely clean now to us in our culture that doesn't quite make as much sense as it would have back then right because they traveled on Dusty, dirty roads in a hot climate with sandals. They didn't have closed-toe shoes back then, right? So every day they were tracking dirt on their feet. And Jesus is saying, look, I've cleaned you. Though he's going to say not all of you, but I've cleaned you. But even a person who has bathed needs to wash their feet. There's grime and gunk that comes from this life, and the fact that we still remain sinners that needs to be addressed. Jesus is telling his disciples and us that what we need is for his daily cleansing. That originally started with a full bath. It started being immersed, as the old hymn says, underneath the cleansing flood. But now, it's turned to him dealing with the issues of sin in our daily life. You see, it can be tempting to think, all right, I've come to faith in Jesus, and now I'll just deal with this stuff. I, I, I can handle these small things. And Jesus says, no, you can't. No, you can't. You need me as much for this daily cleansing as you did when I originally saved you that's what he's saying you need to wash your feet you need to be sanctified you need to deal with the daily dirt in your life if i don't justify you and if i don't sanctify you you can't have any part with me but here's the positive right that's the negative we have to deal with the daily sin but sanctification is so much more I think, than just dealing with that. It's also a positive thing. It's also changing our perspective, because look how this goes on. It says, when he had washed their feet and put on his outer garments and resumed his place, he said to them, do you understand that I, what I have done for you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you were right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also ought to wash one another's feet. For I've given you an example that you should do just as I have done you. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is no greater than his master, nor is a messenger greater than the one who sent him. If you know these things, blessed are you if you do them. So part of sanctification is the positive of following Jesus in obedience. It's him working in our life both to get rid of the crud, but also to shape us and make us more like him. So he says, if you do these things, you will be blessed. That brings us to the next part, his sacrificial love. This is really kind of where he's going with all of this. He's now going to focus on his pending death. And I apologize, that is probably pretty small to read. So I apologize. But what's happening here is that Jesus is gonna say for the third time now, he said it once in chapter 11, once in chapter 12 and now here, that he's troubled. Now, in chapter 11, it was he was troubled in his spirit because of the death of Lazarus. In chapter 12 and here, it's him thinking about what's coming ahead. And it says he's troubled. But before it gets to that, look what he says. He says in verse 18, I am not speaking of all of you. So his sanctifying work, I'm not speaking about everyone in this room, he says. There's one here who doesn't belong. And he says in verse 18, uh, that the scripture might be fulfilled. Who ate, he who ate my bread has lifted up his heel against me. And right here, Jesus is going back to Psalm 41, verse 9. A psalm written by David about a time when David was portrayed. Now, if you know the chronology of that, you know it refers back to 2 Samuel 15. And listen to what it says. But David went up the ascent of the Mount of Olives, weeping as he went, barefoot and with his head covered. And all the people who were with him covered their heads as they went up, weeping as they went. And it was told to David, Ahithophel is among the conspirators with Absalom. So, He's in a dispute with his son, and now he's come to find out that one of his trusted advisors, a Ahipophel, is on his son's side. So somebody he had spent time with, somebody who he had listened to, taken advice from, and lived life with, has now switched sides. He's become David's version of Benedict Arnold. And notice where David is. He's on the Mount of Olives as he finds out exactly where Jesus is going after the upper room. Jesus takes this passage from Psalm 41 and he says, this is really pointing to me because the ultimate betrayal has happened now. But, even though that's a hard thing to hear, look what it says in verse 19. I am telling you this now before it takes place, that when it does take place, you may believe I am he. He's going to use, John is going to use that language later on when he says, the reason I wrote this gospel account is that you might believe who Jesus is. Well, Jesus has just said the same thing to John and the others. He says, I'm telling you what's going to happen. I'm telling you I'm going to be betrayed. I'm telling you I'm going to die. I'm letting you know these things so that after they take place, because I know you don't get it now, but after it takes place that you might believe. So there's a note of hope, of optimism, pointing us in a direction of light. right? But then notice what it says. It keeps going on. It says, after these things... Jesus was troubled in spirit and testified, Truly, truly, I say to one of you, uh, I say to you, one of you will betray me. And what happens? The disciples start looking around like, who in the world is he talking about? As that passage goes on, we see that Peter motions to John and says, Find out who he's talking about. And John leans in, so it kind of indicates John must have been next to Jesus. And he says, Lord, who is it? And Jesus gives him a clue. And then the very next moment, Jesus is dipping the bread in the cup, and he's handing it to the person who's probably on his other side, who is Judas. So notice how close Judas is to Jesus. And he hands it to him. Now, nobody else at the table save John, who probably got it at that moment. Nobody else understands what's going on, because Jesus says, what you're going to do, go do it. And everybody else thinks, oh, well, he's sending them out to get further provisions, or he's sending out to give gifts to the poor, you know, as part of the Passover celebration. And it says, so after receiving the morsel of bread, he, meaning Judas, this is verse 30, he immediately went out, and it was night. So this is where, if it's a movie version, you're cueing the eerie music, right? The music that's going to be like letting you know something good is about to ha- not good, is about to happen. But notice, notice the change in tone after Judas leaves. The change in tone of what Jesus says. It says, when he had gone out, Jesus, meaning Judas, Jesus said, now the Son of Man is glorified, and God is glorified in Him. Notice that He's now turning it, showing us that even though on the outside looking in, it appears things are going poorly, in fact, God is accomplishing His goal. And even though This goal will involve excruciating pain as Jesus bears the sins of the world on his shoulders. He is willingly going to do it, and he, in fact, is joyful in the sense that he knows he will be glorified and God will be glorified through it. And so what does he do? He comforts his disciples. Notice what he says in verse 33, little children he refers to them in a tone of affection and tenderness and he says little children yet in a little while i'm with you you will seek me and just as i said to the jews so now i also say to you where i am going you cannot come so he knows things are going to be hard for them too and he addresses them with this tenderness And what you would expect to come next would be something like we hear at the end of Matthew's Gospel. And don't worry, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. And even though that's true, that's not what Jesus says here. Look how he comforts them. Look what he says to them. Verse 34, a new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I have loved you, you also are to love one another. I mentioned earlier that We hear a lot about love and music, right? Well, maybe the Beatles sort of had a little something right here when they said, all we need is love, right? Because Jesus says, here's what you really need, guys. You need to love one another. In this time, in this transition, in this change, what you really need is to love one another. But he says, this is a new commandment, which sort of doesn't make sense because clearly in the Old Testament, Leviticus 19, for instance, it says, love your neighbor as yourself. So how is this a new commandment? Let me give you three things real quick that I think this is referring to as to why it's new. First, Jesus is establishing a new covenant in his blood. He's becoming the true Passover lamb. He's giving them a new power. He's going to be sending, as we'll see in the coming weeks, the Holy Spirit, to dwell in the believer's life. The old covenant, the law, was written on tablets of stone, but it says the new covenant will be written on the hearts of Jesus' followers. And the Spirit will give them the ability to live in light of that new covenant. And lastly, he's setting a new example of how he loved his followers during his earthly ministry, right? He said just a few moments ago, a few verses before, I've set an example for you. The love, though it isn't only important for the disciples, but for those who would hear the message, the disciples will carry one day, right? Look how it finishes in that section. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples, if you love one another. Right? Like the song goes, what the world needs now is love. Right? Jesus is saying, what will distinguish you, what will show others what I'm like, is you loving one another the way I have loved you. Like, we tend to think, right, that signs and wonders, miracles, healings, gifts, all those things that we see throughout the word, right? That's surely going to be what draws somebody to Christ. But Jesus says, no, if they're really going to know about me, they need to see you loving each other the way I've loved you. And that draws us to the last of these, the surprising love. Now, this isn't so much just one particular line or a couple lines within here. This is more the totality, I think, of the chapter itself. It starts with who's there? Judas. Right? And John is continually referencing back to Judas in this passage, right? It says at the very beginning of chapter 13, uh, during supper when the devil had already put into the heart of Judas Iscariot, Simon's son, to betray Jesus. And then we see Jesus is going to say... That one of you will betray me and then he's going to give him the morsel dipped in the wine and then the devil john says enters judas's heart and he's set fully on the path that we know he's going to follow but all along the way think about this for just a minute with me for three years now judas has been part of a group of men who went out and healed They went out and proclaimed the good news. They went out and gave to the poor. Right? All these things Judas is doing just like the other disciples. And his life is actually having an impact. And yet, he's not even a Christian. Jesus still loves Judas. Even though he's going to be the one that betrays him. That's surprising, isn't it? Because normally we think if we know somebody's going to betray us, hey, we're going to get them first. Not what Jesus does. It's surprising that Jesus is willing to stoop down, right, as we saw and wash the feet of his disciples. His response to Peter, not once, but we'll see in a moment, twice in this chapter, is surprising. And yet, What's also surprising is it's not just Peter and Judas who don't get it, right? It's the other ten who are there. Now, in John's Gospel account, he doesn't go into it, but if you flip back to Luke's just a few pages earlier, at the very moment that Jesus tells them that he's going to be betrayed, they start questioning, who is it? And then right after that, do you know what it says? It says they begin arguing who's going to be the greatest. Right? They go from... Who would do this to Jesus to like, hey, I think it's got to be me who's going to be number one. Right? Their, Their heart isn't any more aligned with Jesus at that moment than Peter's. And yet notice Jesus patiently loving them. If you've ever listened to sermons on this passage, you'll notice there's a great variation generally in how it's handled. Some will say, notice the humility of Jesus. He served the twelve in spite of who he is. Some will say, notice the patience of Jesus. He served the twelve in spite of who they were. Or notice the endurance of Jesus. He served the twelve in spite of what he was facing. So even though he's going to go through an unthinkable event, he's still focused on them. When I thought of this passage, here's here's what I thought of, and this is what I want to share as we close in here. Most of you, I think, probably know Galatians 5.22. Even if you might not know the exact reference, like if you couldn't say it offhand, you'll know it as soon as I start to say it. For the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, and self-control. Why would I think of that passage in relation to John 13? Because in John 13, Jesus is showing the point that I think Paul is making in Galatians 5.22. Notice in that verse, Paul does not say the fruits, plural, of the Spirit. He says the fruit singular of the Spirit. What he's really saying is you either have them all or you don't have them at all. If they're either all there or they're not there at all. You can't say, I love, but not be self-controlled. You can't say, you have patience, but you don't have goodness. All of them are interwoven together, and that's exactly what we're seeing here in John 13. Jesus is demonstrating for us the fruit of the Spirit. Right now, obviously, the easy one to see is love, right? Because the book ends of the chapter are, He loved them to the end. A new commandment I give to you, that you love one another just as I've loved you. But if you dig deeper, and we can't go into it very much, but you'll notice, I think, the other fruit in this context. Such as when he transitions, right, from saying he's distressed in his soul to when Judas goes out and he says, I'm going to be glorified, right? You see joy in Jesus, in the midst of a difficult situation. You see patience as he deals with Judas, as he deals with Peter, and he deals, as he deals with the other ten. You see tenderness as he refers to them as little children, right? He's showing all these connected together as they're meant to be, and as the Spirit produces in someone who truly is following Jesus Christ. So what does this look like? What does this mean for us? I'm going to give you four things. First, check the time. How do we respond? How is it that we get to the point of loving others the way Jesus loves us? First, we need to check the time, right? We've been talking about time this entire time. We use timers and alarms for all sorts of things. To get up in the morning to make sure we're to work on time to make sure that something we're baking in the oven doesn't turn out completely black, right? We use timers when we have an important meeting coming up. Right? Time is important. Check the time, but don't check it in terms of your watch. Like, how long is this guy gonna go on for? No, don't do that. That's not what I'm asking for, right? Look at the time, right? Because look at the kairos. Look at the appointed time that Jesus is set, right? The Bible says today is the day of salvation. Maybe that's what you need to hear today. Today is the day of salvation. Second, take a bath. Now, I don't mean go home and get a shower. I mean, if you've been hearing about Jesus, maybe it's here on a Sunday morning, maybe it's in a small group, maybe it's from a family member or friend, but you haven't gotten to the point where you've trusted him. But maybe today, because today is the day of salvation, maybe today you sense Jesus is up to something. What he's up to is he's calling you to become and be cleansed of the sin that has separated you from him, for which he paid the price on the cross through his sacrificial love. Thirdly, let Jesus wash your feet. Now, obviously, I don't mean literally let him wash your feet. Let him deal with the barnacles of life that cling to you. Don't hide them. Don't try to think you can deal with them on your own. Come to him with them. As John will say in his first epistle, confess your sins to him, for he is faithful and just to forgive you your sins and cleanse you from all unrighteousness. And lastly, be overwhelmed. Now... Normally, when we say overwhelmed, we think of it in a negative context. What I mean here, though, is be overwhelmed by Jesus' surprising love for you. See, if I stand up here and say Jesus loves you, for most of us, it's like, yeah, I already know that. That's an amazing statement. That he loves you. The one who was his enemy. The one who defied him at every turn and lived life on your own terms. He loves you. That should be shocking. Let that shocking, surprising love of Jesus overwhelm you today. And here's where we're going to conclude. You might have noticed, and this was intentional, that the last three verses of chapter 13 I haven't touched yet. Here's why. We know the story of Peter, right? He's impulsive, but generally he's pretty loyal. Yet at the end of this chapter, we're going to see that Jesus tells him when Peter's like, I want to come with you, I will die for you. Jesus says, really? Because before the cock crows, you're going to deny me three times. And then that ends the chapter, right? And so it's almost like you're watching your favorite TV show, and it's the last show of the season, and now there's a cliffhanger. What's going to happen with Peter? Is he going to wind up where Judas is at? Or is something else going to take place? Of course, we know something else does, in fact, take place. But we also know that Peter does deny Jesus three times. And that's one of the few things in the Holy Week account that all four Gospels actually reference. They reference Peter's denial of Jesus. In fact, in Luke's account, what happens after he denies him, it says that Jesus and Peter lock eyes on Jesus' way out from the show trial that he's had with the Jewish leaders. And Peter sees him, and it completely breaks Peter. It says that he began to whip bitterly, and he left. His life was in ruin. He was not going to be the same. In fact, after the resurrection, when the women come back from the tomb and they tell him, he's not there, he really has risen, it says that Peter thinks it's just an idle tale. There's no way that this can be real. Right? He's dealing with the guilt and the shame of what he's done. And yet, I've shared this with some of you before. One of my favorite passages is found in the Gospel of Mark. And I read it every year on on, uh, Easter, I almost say Christmas morning, Easter morning, the day of the resurrection, where the angels say, Go tell the disciples and Peter. He specifically calls Peter out because unlike Judas, who went, he didn't come back to Jesus when he messed up. He went to the religious leaders and tried to give the money back to assuage his guilt. Peter is going to come back to Jesus. And we'll see it later in John's gospel account, right? Peter returns to his old life of being a fisherman. And one day there's this guy on the shore, and he's like, do you have anything? And they're like, not yet. And he's like, throw it out on the other side. And all of a sudden, there's all these fish. and, And Peter knows immediately, that's Jesus! And he jumps out of the boat, right? And he swims to shore. And there's Jesus waiting for him. Right, it's such a beautiful picture. And Jesus is going to, you know, Jesus had said you can't follow me now in this passage. At the end of the gospel account, he's going to say to Peter, follow me. Right? He's going to, he's going to give him that second chance. Now, look, I, you know, there are certain passages all of us have that are favorites and mean a lot to us because of the personal experiences we've gone through let me say to you that this is one I think that could apply to every single one of us. Look at verse 7, and then look at verse 36. Verse 7, what I am doing now you don't understand, but afterward you will understand. And then where I I am going, you cannot follow me, but you will follow afterward. Now, some some of your translations use a different word than afterward, but it's the same idea. What a beautiful word to be found in the text of Scripture. We get an afterword. Our sins, our mistakes, our constant, at times, uh, turning from Jesus, there's an opportunity for an afterword. Where he does not reject us, where he does not say, it's been too many times, Jason, but where he lovingly embraces us again. Peter got to experience that because of the type of love that Jesus has, the same love he has for you and me. Let's pray. God, overwhelm us today with your love for us. Overwhelm us in the areas of our life, God, where we, have, we haven't surrendered, where we've done our own thing, areas we've tried to keep hidden. Areas, God, where we've been struggling and are ashamed and feel guilty but haven't come to you about. Jesus, I pray that we would find that place of afterward that Peter did all those years ago. And that finding that, that we would be freshly infused with your love. A love both for you, for each other, and for those around us. That we might be lifted up in spirit, encouraged and strengthened because you never change and your love never changes. Thank you, Jesus, for that incredible love, for giving it to us when we are so unlovable, so undeserving, yet you chose to set your love upon us. Help us to go in that love today, God. Help us to be mindful of the time. Help us to come to you with our feet that need to be washed, and help us to be overwhelmed in your surprising love, I pray, in your precious and holy and loving name, Jesus. Amen.